Well, good morning. We get to start a new series today, and I am looking forward to what God's going to do in each and every one of us, and I pray you're as excited as I am about this. You know, having the ability to see the gift of sight is often a, a gift many of us take for granted, right? I mean, many of us just, uh, we, we assume that we should all have the ability to see, and many of us see very clearly from birth, and some of us don't. But the gift to be able to see the world as it is, full and radiant, full of life, can be energizing, can be inspiring, can be something a part of our lives that makes us maybe stand a little bit taller, breathe a little bit deeper. But when somebody doesn't have the ability to see things clearly, it impacts the way they respond, the way they interact with the world around them. I don't know if you've had a chance to see this video of a little infant named Piper. It went around several years ago, but it's a, a young girl they found out uh, basically couldn't see or couldn't see clearly because she wasn't beginning to crawl or move or do some of the things that developmentally she would naturally be a part of. So I want to show you the video. The first time that Piper gets a set of glasses and her parents put them on them and she begins to recognize the voices that she's heard in her life. Watch this video. Piper. Hi. Hi, <laughs> I think she can. <laughs> now, what I love about that video is just as a simple infant, there is a connection of what we see and what's around us very quickly, right? The voices that have been so caring and loving in her life now have faces. A, a child who, stare, who struck, struggles by being farsighted wrestled with being able to clearly see her own parents. But when a face with a voice comes together, automatically a smile emerges from this child. What if we were able to see things more clearly? And maybe it is our lack of vision or our sense of blindedness that we have to the world around us. What if we could see clearly? Would it change the way we feel about things? Would it change the way that we respond? And the biggest reason that we're doing this series is partly because it, it creates a crescendo of where we've been as a church. The series All In allowed us to really evaluate in our lives what it means to be a part of the local church. And are we in or are we just simply attending? And if we're attending, what would it look like to move beyond that, to engage on a different way within our local church? And we felt a surge and a momentum that came from that series uh, to the point that we launched 53 community groups. And we saw more new groups start than ever. And we began to see a new emergence within our church. We just got done with Kaleidoscope Church, and we asked the question, though, okay, so if we're all in, when people look at us, they see these broken shards of glass, these different pieces and shapes coming together, do they see the design that God has intended for its local church? What do they see in us? But we started in a series called I Heart My Community, or I Love My Community. We begin to understand that when we come together, and the world is watching, perhaps there's a greater response and a purpose that God has called us all to, which is to, to step out and to step up into the world, to see things the way God sees things, to feel the things that God feels, so that we might live in a way that the world might be transformed for his love 
and his purpose. What would it look like for that to happen to us? Because inherently we believe that there has become a disconnect with the local church. That we don't naturally see things the way God sees our world. We don't necessarily break for the things that break God's heart. And so we don't move to the people, to the wounds, to the hurts of our world the way God would move. And so we're looking at a book called Nehemiah. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and open there. And Nehemiah is a pretty interesting book because it follows the book of Ezra. And they're kind of, they're seen as two books in our Bible. But when they were originally written, they were seen as one. There has been this continuation of history in the nation of Israel where they have come out of exile and people are being sent back. They're going back in movements of people back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah stands up in the moment of the third movement of these people and begins to capture this idea of loving our community. Now, now why would we use the title, I Heart My Community? Because I think sometimes when we think about our community, uh, we don't see it for what it really is. I mean, oftentimes even in our region, we call this area CU, but CU is really uh, two communities of this greater region. And the truth of the matter is you can get on Facebook and there are people who, who rally to this idea of CU but excludes Savoy or Tolono. Or, and you begin to think about that as a church. We've been a, a regional church for quite some time. And we reach as far as Hoopston and Arcola uh, to Gibson City, uh, over to Mansfield. I mean, we reach almost in 60 minutes any direction. People come to gather in this body, in this family, to call this place their church. And so when we talk about our community, really what we're talking about is we love our communities, right? We love all the places that are represented here and all the places that God has scattered us around our community. And what a great opportunity we would have if each and every one of us loved our community the way God loves our community. And what might it look like if God's people began to love together this community in such a way that it looked like the very heart of God, the very movement of God. Now, Nehemiah is a man within this, this play that is coming together. He's actually going to lead where we're going to go. And he's been taken into captivity, into the Babylonian Empire. And it starts somewhere about what we would say 444 B.C. Now, there's a lot of we, that we can unpack about this book. But uh, after our services today, we're actually going to put up a, a video that kind of encapsulates it in a way that can help give a better smattering of understanding about where this comes from. But what you need to know is that Nehemiah sits at a place within the kingdom, within the palace, where he has a greater view of everything that's going on in the world. And because of that, when news begins to come his direction, he begins to hear things, not only from his own perspective, but the, the king's perspective, from his family's perspective, from his people's perspective. And he gets a, a historical perspective that begins to shape his vision into what is happening right now and what could be happening in his life. Here's what it says in Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're just going to unpack the first four verses of this chapter, but here's what it says. In the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And so I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, the Babylonian exile, and also about Jerusalem. 
They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broke down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, speaking of Nehemiah, I sat down. I wept. For some days I mourned. I fasted. And I prayed before the God of heaven. Now this book opens up with Nehemiah's brother come and bringing news to the king. Now, some commentators say this is literally his brother or this is a brother from another mother. You know, somebody who's close to him. But it's somebody who has great relationship that when he enters into the king's presence, when he gives this report to Nehemiah himself, Nehemiah finds him as a trusted voice uh, having the pulse of what's happening in the world, specifically his world back in Jerusalem. And so as the news comes to him, he he finds himself roughly about uh, November or December of the Jewish calendar at this point. And he's kind of thinking about what's happening in the dynamic of his overall community. And what his brother says is the city's in, in just ruins. And the people are just as broken. And it stops Nehemiah. It stops Nehemiah. Their city had been destroyed Their walls have been burnt. They're they're left in shambles. So why does this matter? Because one of the pieces, one of the portraits throughout the history of the Israelites and their relationship with God is that Jerusalem would be the city where the temple of God would be, the presence of God would be. And so the people of Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, and the city surrounding it, its health, Its flourishing, its success was all a testimony to their relationship with God. So when the city was flourishing, when life was bustling, when everything around it, its walls were secured and it was fortified as a city that could care for itself, secure itself, protect itself, the people looked around and it was a testimony back to God. But now their city is exposed. Their walls are open to whatever and whoever circumstances may come and invade them. People are just kind of going about their own business and the community of God is being reflective in a way that the word disgrace is being used. Some of you, I I, I don't get this. Okay, let's let's say it this way. Let's say you live in a state where it was once known for being a, a, a great economic power, right? And so throughout its communities, it had, it had all sorts of industry, whether it was GM or whether it was an Air Force base. And, and people were moving to this region and people were coming into town and, and everybody was bringing money and jobs and family and children. And, and you saw the state just begin to grow and grow and grow. And then all of a sudden... It became what it is. It became a place where its people didn't trust its politicians. Budgets couldn't get approved. Industry began to leave. The local prison became a growing business for a community that was once known as a community that had athletes and TV stars and actors and musicians, people who were leading culture, now are left as communities 
that watch industry go just, just a few more miles across the state line? Does that, does that speak to anybody in this room? Yeah. And so Nehemiah says, that, but, but that community is my community. And my community was the gem, was the beacon, was the standard, was the portrait of what a life and people and community look like when God is at its center and God is changing the world. So the question becomes, if this message camps in our backyard, could this be a Nehemiah moment for us? Could this be a time in our community where we begin to look around and instead of pointing at the things that we don't like, instead of folding our arms and grumbling about things we can't fix, instead of being the kind of people that just kind of look out for ourselves and bury our head and keep moving forward, could this be a Nehemiah moment for us that we might stand up, step up, roll up our sleeves and say, God, how might you use us in this moment? How might we be able to make a difference? What might the church be able to do that nobody else could do? How do we fill that gap, God? And what does this mean for us? Well, let me ask this question. Why, why is this such a big deal for Nehemiah? I mean, most of us read these four verses and we don't think much of it. We, we think that he gets this news and it shocks him, right? We think when we read this, maybe we don't have a lot of history with the book of Nehemiah. So we read this and we go, oh, so Nehemiah got bad news from, from his brother. And so clearly he's upset. Can I tell you something? The city had been sieged and in ruins and burned and attacked over 150 years ago. This is like wanting to talk about the President of the United States and we're talking about Abraham Lincoln, right? That's past history. People know about that, right? And so Nehemiah gets this news and he's known that Jerusalem has been that way. Some commentators ask the question, well, maybe it's because there have now been three movements of people back to the city. Maybe, maybe Nehemiah just assumes that as soon as people get back, to a broken, hurting city that they automatically just roll up their sleeves, pick up their shovels, and they start putting things back together. And maybe he's disappointed. Maybe he thought they'd be farther than what they are now. Some commentators ask, maybe, maybe is Nehemiah just so far removed from the people around him and the people that he's grown up with that he no longer knows their needs? I think the reality is that more often than not, what's happening in this passage is that Nehemiah wakes up. That Nehemiah sees and feels and wants to respond as God would want to respond. And I wonder today, can we ask this question? What breaks your heart? What is it that gets you to put your feet on the floor every morning to get up and live a different life? Is, uh, do you find yourself every day ready to engage or do you find yourself kind of just walking through life about trying to make it more convenient, more comfortable, more of what we want? Or do you stand up in a life of surrender and say, God, this is a day for you to transform me and transform our world. Look what happens. Go back to those verses. Look what happens in, in Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah's heart breaks for his city and for his people. And he responds, first and foremost, he stops and weeps. Now those two words in and of themselves don't seem overly powerful unless 
you've had a moment where you are going at life's pace and you're doing what you do, being who you are, and all of a sudden something just sucker punches you straight to the gut and you stop, right? And before you can compose yourself, your eyes begin to weep. And this is the portrait of Nehemiah. That he is standing in his position. He's doing what he does. He hears and sees what he hears and sees. And it stops him in his tracks. And he breaks. He confesses his sin. You see this in this prayer that begins to follow out of this. He, as he mourns and he fasts, meaning he takes time to remove something from his life so that God may fill him with his character and his strength. And then he begins to pray and he praises God for who he's been. A God who moves mountains. A God who can do more than we ever thought or imagined. But then he confesses his own sin and, the conf and he confesses the sin of his people. But then he returns back to the faithfulness of God. We will not forget, God, what you have done. And then he asks God to help him. That he might find favor. And verse 12 says this. I love this statement that he just makes. I am the cupbearer. That's how, that's how chapter 1 finishes. This declaration of what's happening in our community... This open-ended prayer to God and a statement that says, I'm the cupbearer. Now, most of us would go, so, so what's that mean? In many ways, it's like saying, well, well I'm, I'm the plumber. I'm the school teacher. I, I, I'm somebody who knows I, I'm part of the people. But his position has him in a posture that allows him more privilege than even most of his peers. What is a cupbearer? Well, take the word, split it apart, means he bears the cup. Whose cup? The king's cup. He's responsible of protecting, taking care, having the cup, making sure it's able to be available. But more significantly, he also is the first one to drink from the king's cup so that it's in case it's poisoned, he dies and not the king, Right? They weren't pushing this in, in Jerusalem College or university. You know, it wasn't something that everybody went for. This, he got this position because he was taken into captivity. But through a series of probably ex experiences or situations where he began to build trust, he raises up through the kingdom where he is sitting right next to the king. And maybe even more than the queen, the king trusts the cupbearer to be the one that will carry for him this responsibility to keep the king alive to protect him at all costs, to be the one that will take his death so that the king does not die. I'm the cupbearer. What's that mean? It means that he has a view, that he has an opportunity, that he has a perspective to hear, to see, to feel, to do things, and to begin to enact change that others would not have. Here's what we begin to understand. It's this big idea. That we recognize the community, of God, the community God intends as our hearts break. We recognize the community God intends as our hearts break. And Nehemiah begins to look around and he realizes this is not the way the world should be. This is not how the people of God should live. This is not how the city of God should reflect itself. Something must change. And I... I might see it differently. 
which means I probably feel differently about this, which probably means I should do something different about this. This is a wake-up call for Nehemiah, and things are not going to go back to normal for him. The world is not going to fix itself. People are hurting, and a community is failing, and the city and all of its ruins and all of its scars are waiting to be restored back to life. So God begins to work on Nehemiah's heart. God begins to transform Nehemiah's heart that he might live differently. And here's where we begin to learn that restoring people begins by transforming hearts. This is not about getting people to vote the right way, to think like us, act like us, walk like us, talk like us. It is about bringing life change, heart transformation that only God can do in each and every one of us to our community. And God stirs up this agitation in Nehemiah and he begins to shift from the inside out. God's people are cloudy and confused, catastrophically even existing. Some people saw their ruins and they gave up. Some people saw uh, uh, things that were destroyed and they became apathetic. Nehemiah heard the news and deep down inside erupted a desire for change. For change because God is their only hope. God is our only hope. Which makes me begin to think about this. When broken people live in broken cities, our hearts should break too. Shouldn't it? When people live in broken cities, our hearts should break too. Now granted, we don't carry the violence or the hate of the city of Chicago. But we still have issues within our communities. Households and families are falling apart. Anger and hatred that shows up between communities. Bullying scenarios in schools where people are excluded and oppressed. We may not be in as bad a shape as Jerusalem, but we live in a broken world. And our broken world will not be restored until we allow God to transform our hearts and allow God to do something new in us so that we might do something different. One of the most beautiful things I see about the picture of Nehemiah is this, though. That Nehemiah's heart looks like the heart of Jesus. Do you know if you looked up... uh, uh, this idea of Jesus crying or Jesus wept, that you would get basically three different responses throughout the New Testament where Jesus' heart is broke. The first is on his triumphant entry. He's walking into a community. He's being escorted in. He's going to be the king of kings. This is before uh, he's to be crucified. And it says he sees, he oversees the entire city. And you know what he does for that city? He cries. He weeps for the people and the community. Because God is here. God is with us. And they don't see him in the eyes of how he should be seen. The second time that Jesus, a second time that Jesus is seen crying is when his friend Lazarus has died, right? And he stands before the tomb and he's weeping because the grieving, the hurt, the woundedness of someone who has died is so overwhelming. Someone who he calls friend. And he weeps in that moment. 
The third picture of where Jesus cries or is moved, though, to emotion, where his heart is breaking, is the time that he's pulling his disciples aside. He's teaching them what it looks like to lead in a world that may be off its rocker. And he says this. He says, come, come, come here, come here, come here. When you see all these people, what do you see? And Jesus uses this, this phrase. It says, he was moved with compassion, which that word carries the idea of a, of a fallen heart, a heart that is broken and fallen into your stomach to the point that it just agitates all of your bowels. Do you know what I'm saying? He pulls his disciples close. His students close. He says, look at him. Look at him. They look helpless, harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. And you know what he says? He doesn't say, hold on, boys. <laughs> it's going to be a rough ride. He says, no. The fields are white and to harvest. Ask that God would send workers, shepherds, Christ followers, people who carry the heart of God. Ask that God would move his people into a world that seems so dark, that seems so lonely, that seems so broken. Ask God that he would stir up in us, that we would raise our hands. I'm the plumber. I'm the teacher. I'm the cupbearer. I'm the pastor. Let me be a witness to a world that God's not done. So we want to challenge you. We want to challenge you to help us in a couple of different ways. And some of you are already connected in the community groups and you've been invited into some projects that you know throughout this series we're going to showcase. We're going to get a chance to expose ways that we are moving our people, connecting our people, serving into our community. And we're going to celebrate that during our worship services. But there's one event that I want to encourage all of us to be a part of. Now, last week, you had the chance to be a part of Fall Festival, and craziest thing happened. Uh, Jeff and I are talking. Elaine comes to me and says, hey, how many people do you think we have on campus right now? And I said, you know, I'm a pastor. I don't count well. It'll be wrong, so I won't say. It's, it's a lot of people, though. So Jeff leaves our conversation, and he goes to one end of the campus, and he just walks all the way through the crowd, and he comes back to me, and he shows me his phone. At an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 15 minutes into Fall Festival, which if you were there, you saw people kept coming and coming and coming. There was 882 people here. Now, what I love about that is every tribe, tongue, and nation was here as well. There were people dressed in ways that told me they worship a different God. There were some experiences, some scenarios where I... I wasn't sure if some of the people on our location believed in God. And I thought, this is what we want. This is what God wants. And so through some prayer and some conversation, Eric and his team has been wrestling with, how do we expand the influence of Urbana? How do we expand the influence of First Christian throughout this region? And you know that we partner with an organization called Salt and Light. Salt and Light uh, serves those who are uh, underprivileged throughout our community. And they have just secured a new location in Urbana over the last year on, in southeast Urbana. And we are going to be a part of an event called Trunk or Treat on October 28th from 4 to 6 p.m., Okay. Now, some of you are like, what is a trunk or treat? Well, let me give you some pictures, okay? A trunk or treat event is an event where people bring their vehicles, they decorate the trunk of their car, and people walk up to it to either see the trunk or to grab a treat. Now, some of you are like, this is the greatest marketing idea I have ever heard. 
Now let me tell you what God's put on our heart. Terry Austria, who works for Salt and Light, has been in that region for quite a while, serving and being a part of it. And we are going to engage two, maybe three of the elementary schools that are just simply a stone's throw from Salt and Light. And we're asking for 100 cars. Why? Because 100 cars is what it will take to reach 1,000 people. Now, we love having people come to this location. But I think God loves us going to other people's locations even more. And so what would look what it look like what would it look like if your your community group began to look around and said, "Hey, you, you've got a car, you've got a car. Hey, why don't we donate three cars and we're going to decorate them and we're going to take this section. We're going to take this area." Or, or maybe some of you're going, "Well, my business would do this. We'd love to we'd love to sponsor some vehicles. We'd love to be a part of this and and, and make this happen." But what it's going to take is every one of us as Christ followers wrestling with how do we begin to step up and how do we begin to step out to serve our community. Now, my hope is in the coming weeks, we'll give you more specifics. But what we want you to know is that this trunk or treat at Salt and Light in Urbana, Illinois, from 4 to 6 p.m. on October 28th is a great opportunity to be the power and the presence of God by being his people serving those around us. Now, some of you are saying, but that's not my community. No, it, it probably isn't where you live. But it doesn't mean we can't make a plan to come to your community as well. Maybe not as a trunk or treat, but maybe there's something else that God's stirring up in you. Maybe there's an initiative that God's calling you to step up and take. Maybe there's something that's happening in your world that God wants to begin to happen. And this is partly why we're a multi-site church. It's because we believe that as the vision of God expands, God will be moving his people to communities to neighborhoods, with groups, with ministries, that we can be within arm's reach of people who are broken and hurting and we can serve them as God would serve them. So let me just say, wouldn't this be a fun way to serve our community? Now the truth of the matter is, there's a lot that's happening in our world right now. I mean, you just think about the violence and the rage the hatred, the racism, the isms uh, that are all out there that are just being rampant today. Broken homes and crumbled marriages. It's difficult even to sometimes look at the reality of the world and not want to simply just roll over and go back to sleep. But if God is our hope, if God can restore our hearts, and we believe that God can restore all people, why wouldn't we step out in this moment in this time? When others, when others distance themselves, we must choose to love. When others are repulsed by the condition of the world and disgusted, we must repent of our own wrongdoings. When others walk away from those in need, we are called to be the witness that God is good and God is loving. When others step back and walk away, we must step up roll up our sleeves and bring the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ to those who need. That's why I love this verse. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you and he is not wanting anyone 
to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let me say it this way. If we were to summarize all that has been said today, it would be this. When we see the world as God sees it, it should break our hearts. If our hearts break like God's heart breaks, then it should move us into our world. So may our eyes see as God sees. May our hearts feel as God's heart feels. May our hands do what God's hands would do. That should be our prayer. We're going to move to a time of response. There is no doubt that we look at the world and we see its darkness. There is no doubt that when we talk about the darkness and the hurt of our world, oftentimes the first place we turn to is our own lives. And so maybe today it's the darkness of our own hearts that we realize that maybe we've, re- we've recoiled, we've pulled back. Maybe we realize that we've stepped away when we should have stepped up. Maybe we realize that our hearts are hardened, we've become apathetic. And maybe today it's about getting right with God. But here's what has to be understood is we're not just trying to get our communities to be nicer or more friendly. We're asking for a heart change in the world that we're a part of. That outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, outside of the power of God and His Holy Spirit, will this world ever really change? And as we look at all of its darkness and we look at all of its suffering and we look at our own lives and we begin to pull back, we would ask that God would challenge us to be courageous. That God would challenge us to be bold. Not as the world thinks of Christ's followers with signs in the air and fingers pointing at them, but with open arms of love and compassion with the the fury of justice and truth, where there is injustice and oppression in our world, that we would be zealous about the very things that Jesus was zealous about, overturning tables, confronting people, and calling those of us out that say we love God, but really wear a mask to just look nicer than the person next to us. Friends, Our world's only hope is Jesus. And we know that because it's our only hope. So let me pray, and then we'll get ready to respond, okay? God, meet us in this moment. God, move our hearts, move our feet. God, sometimes we confess that we go, wow, that was really moving. Man, that really changed me. And we're not sure if we're talking about a worship experience or if we've talked about the last movie we just saw. And God, if our, if our eyes capture a glimpse at all of what you see, if our hearts feel even just a smidgen of what your heart feels, if our hands might move and feet might move to the places where you might move, God, 
miracles might happen. And God, we want that for our world. Not for our credit, not for our glory, not for our fame, not for more people in the seats, not for more dollars in the plate. It's because, God, we believe that you changed the world because you hold eternity in your hand. So, God, might you change us today. Might you quicken our hearts. Might you alert our minds. And might you move us into our community. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite every one of you to go ahead and stand. We're going to give you the opportunity to respond. And if you're a guest with us today, maybe, maybe you've not experienced that with us. But what happens is we'll begin to sing a song. And when people are ready, they'll begin to move throughout the room. Some will come forward to these benches to, to pray, to confess, to repent. Some will move to these tables to take communion where they'll eat the bread and drink the juice that reminds us of God's broken body, his shed blood. That's the payment for our sin. That's the gift of eternal life. That's where we find our hope. And others of us will go to these give or response boxes where we give of our, our offerings or decisions of faith and action, prayer requests that we want to share within the local church. And then each of us, according to our gifts, will respond, maybe even through the Give app, in generosity. That the hope that God has given us, we might partner back in the ministry that God is doing through us. Let's sing.